Welcome to Starwatcher Podcast, where we explore startup universe, innovations, startups, and investors. Today, my guest is Mike Arpaia, co-founder and applied AI at Moonfire, one of the pioneering VC firms in data-driven investing. Mike is a hacker at his heart, and we go into some interesting technical details in our conversation. We talk about founder analytics versus company analytics, thesis-driven investment approach, and why you should be kind when talking with ChatGPT. I really enjoyed our conversation, and now off to Mike. Hello, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, super happy to have you over. The point of the show is uh, to talk about data-driven investing. And um, yeah, I, I would like to explore Moonfire and how you are doing things. Sure. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Um, yeah, we could, we could, uh, yeah, we could begin with... Uh, Maybe you can tell a bit of, about yourself. I did some uh, research and actually you're the guy who has had every hat. You're an engineer. <laughs> you're, uh, you have uh, developed uh, stuff at Facebook. You have had your own startup and now you're with the VC, but you're also kind of engineer at the VC side. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you the overview. And I think like every story sometimes, and when you tell it in ret- with retrospect, it um it seems like a really linear path, but didn't necessarily feel that way in the moment. But yeah, I went to university for computer science and math in, uh, in the U.S. I grew up in New York, and then um actually dropped out of my undergrad uh like a year and a half early to accept a full time job offer as a professional hacker. Uh, so I did that for a few years and sort of was working on cryptography, secure protocols, and sort of like programming language security and stuff like that. Really enjoyed it, but I sort of started spending more and more time writing tools to automate the hacking and was enjoying that more than the hacking itself. So I transitioned <laughs> to an engineering role at uh, first at Etsy in New York uh, and then at Facebook in the Bay Area. Both roles kind of focused on data science, machine learning meets uh, distributed data infrastructure. Uh, uh, while I was at Facebook, I built and open source what is now one of the most popular open source security tools in the world. It's called OS Query, and it's a SQL based operating system analytics platform. Um, and sort of, you know, was just re- what, you know, was then and still continue to be really psyched about giving people the ability to interact with information systems using increasingly simpler language. Um, so then it was SQL, you know, now it's natural language. Um, but I've been on that journey since then, probably in some ways. Um, but after I worked at Facebook, I was co-founder CTO of an infrastructure analytics startup that aimed to democratize a lot of what we were building for other SMBs. I was also a member of the Kubernetes core team for a few years, working on things like release and architecture and stuff like that. And I was a research engineer at Mila, the academic AI research lab in, um, in Montreal, founded by Yashua Bengio. And um, before I was working at Moonfire, I was machine learning architect at Workday, where I was um, uh, sort of working on transformer-based, embedding-based sort of search and recommendation infrastructure for all of the types of the Workday object model. So we're basically taking all of the types and entities within the Workday object model, so people, companies, learning content, all of this, embedding them into unified geometries based on different, uh, you know, different aspects, depending on like the product context, and then using those geometries for a variety of search recommendation and pathfinding use cases. 
Um, I really loved that technical subject matter of deep learning for natural language processing and the emerging transformer-based ecosystem applied to these language-rich entities within the professional domain. Uh, but I didn't really like working at a slow-moving corporate enterprise. So uh, I moved to the UK about three years ago and because um, my wife, my then-girlfriend, now wife, is British. And I was sort of looking for a new opportunity where I could continue working with the sort of exciting emerging transformer-based ecosystem applied to the professional domain, uh, but sort of ideally in somewhere that was a bit more fast-paced, that was a bit more entrepreneurial, where I would have more like influence over the um, core technical direction and stuff like this. And was really lucky to meet Matthias Langeman, who's co-founder of Atomico, who had just, like left Atomico just before that and decided to start his own firm. Uh, where he basically wanted to work at the earliest stages of venture and wanted to sort of reimagine how to approach venture to use software data machine learning to optimize and accelerate every aspect of the venture capital life cycle. Um, and uh, so I met Matthias sort of right as he was starting that. And it was a great partnership between a like super experienced venture capitalist and um, and and me. Uh, so that was awesome. Yeah, I've heard a lot of venture capitalists talk about um, how they're basically a venture uh, or a technology company that does venture capital and sort of uh, in, introducing a lot of like innovative technology into their into the way they do VC. And it always kind of fell short, in my opinion, for a variety of reasons. Um, but two things really struck me about the opportunity of working with Matthias. One was that Matthias really got it. He really understood the degree to which it would have to be a like core part of the fabric of the firm. Uh, and be, you know, as, you know, employee number one and sort of like part, like one of two partners in this firm, I could really have a hand personally in making this like a fulfilling engineering architecture. So super psyched. And plus, I think there's a lot of ways that you could reason about sourcing, screening and evaluation as a machine learning driven search and recommendation problem, uh, which is the method like methodologically what I had been focusing on for a few years at that point and was keen to continue focusing on and sort of methodologically, it's a lot of how we frame certain parts of the problem at Moonfire now. Um, so yeah, I think it, it really fit. So that's how I uh, sort of wound up here. Yeah, I would say I definitely self-identify as a technologist more than a venture capitalist. Um, I love the venture capital subject matter. I love sort of being able to work with our portfolio companies um, and help them with their machine learning architecture and sort of engineering architecture problems and um, sort of work with so many fun, cool entrepreneurs. Um, and I love building in this space for sure, but I don't know if I would... Um, be so well suited for like a full-time investor role or something like that a bit too many meetings so you, for me, you're the you're the hacker yeah exactly why once you go hacker you never go back yeah once you've seen the the other side yeah yeah <laughs> cool um yeah you you also mentioned uh what what fascinates me is that uh, you you were uh one of the first on board straight away with the transformer architecture uh why yeah i guess i was really into deep learning at the time um when the and i think like uh i first started using we first started using transformers at workday like right when the burt paper came out um because we were already That's 2017 or 18 something like that i can't remember the exact date i could look it up but basically um we were already pretty invested in a variety of in, like embedding approaches at that time. Uh, and there's a whole, you know, we could go through the history of embedding 
approaches, but there's a whole like, uh, you know, set of non-neural and like early neural embedding approaches. And then, you know, Bert came out and that was really exciting. And like after that paper, I would say like most, the most, if not all of the state of the art approaches to embedding things um, were transformer based. Um, and yeah, it was just, I mean, I guess before the transformer, in deep learning research, the the zeitgeist was to like iterate on the architecture and try to like find better architectures. And then since the transformer has emerged as dominant, uh, we've sort of the zeitgeist has become, you know, iterate on everything but the transformer. Um, so it was really fun and interesting to kind of like participate in that um, transition. Uh, and yeah, it's really funny now because like transformers, like something that my mother-in-law knows about. Um, but <laughs> yeah, at that time it was just like, just as arcane as like any other bit of like machine learning technology. So I think to some degree it was like right place, right time. Um, and I just really like, personally, I just really believe in, um, so in deep learning, we have this thing, the universal function approximation theorem. And it's the idea that like a neural network can approximate any function. Uh, any pure function. Uh, so if you believe in the universal approximation theorem, you know, which is true, uh, then you can reason about neural networks as a sort of just like arbitrary computing device. So if um, I just really like, I think that is a really nice decoupling of compute and execution, you know, we can iterate on hardware to make uh, neural network execution uh, really fast, efficient, and scalable. We can iterate on methodology, both in the terms of architecture, as well as how the neural network learns and stuff like this. Uh, and then, you know, it's just a really like flexible, composable platform for machine learning. Um, and that has always really excited me about deep learning. Um, so that's sort of like then if you've been in, if you've been working on deep learning for the past few years and like, obviously you've gone through this transformer journey as well. So I don't yeah. think it's because I have seen you know, so much foresight or something. It's sort of the way that the whole industry has, has moved yeah. over the past several years. How you would look from the investor perspective. So now, uh, data-driven, uh, investing as a concept is kind of forming and becoming, uh, a thing in itself. So how do you see where we are on the on the journey as an industry investor, VC industry from, hey, just come and pitch me and I will make decision up to like, here's the bunch of agents running around and making decisions. And I'm just the, the final, final opinion maker. Yeah, I mean, I think we're pretty, I think we're super early in this transition. Um, and I think it's not too dissimilar from the transition that the hedge fund industry went through um, in the 80s and 90s, where you used to have a lot of like stock pickers um, that were operating hedge funds. And now if you talk to a hedge fund manager, you know, it, it's table stakes to have like a rigorous quantitative strategy. Uh, and I think that we're in this transition now with the venture capital industry is just like becoming more complex and larger scale. And thus the traditional way of working, um, you know, probably can still generate good returns, but uh, is not an efficient way to create like a long lasting, um, scalable financial institution anymore. Um, so I think we're pretty early in the transition at the moment, um, for mm. sure. And that's been really fun to see emerge as well, because like when we've been, you know, banging on about this for going on three years now. And at that time, it was like a pretty niche thing to be doing. Um, and now it's a pretty, um, 
you know, it is like the VC cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, hats off to Andrea from Early Bird who uh, has put together the data-driven uh, influencers or uh, opinion yeah. leaders, opinion leaders uh, paper. That's that's yeah, that's that's fun. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, Andre's journey. Andre's journey is an interesting one too, for sure. Yeah, I've known Andre for a long time, and yeah, we're all in the Slack group and um, have like been meeting up and uh, in person and online for for years now. Um, so it's really fun to see that um, you know industry ecosystem go from a few like you know nerds with niche opinions to a growing contingent within what is a like cool fast moving industry so that's been really <laughs> fun for sure yes so now uh, now where do you see where it's best applicable this data driven approach uh in uh, in in the spectrum of company growth so they are like i just have an idea and then the other end is uh, yeah here's our uh, data room with all the excel excels and this is all the data and everything so where historically it seems that it has been more where there's more data but now with the language models we are going down where the there are more soft signals yeah i think when i first got into this industry um, working on pre-seed and seed one of the things that we used to say all the time is like look at once you get to series a the core unit of calculation is a company you're reasoning about the company and quantitative metrics about the company and its growth and stuff like this and at pre-seed and seed the uh, primary unit of calculation is a person so we're doing people analytics. We're like reasoning about people and their experiences and how they've worked with their co-founders before and where and in what context and stuff like that. And um, I always used to say like people analytics is a harder but possible problem to solve. And it takes, you know, a relatively experienced set of data engineers to wrangle this data ecosystem, which is why we are uniquely suited to solve the problem at Moonfire, because we have so many sort of like engineers um, and scientists on the team. So I think that I think that used to be the case. It used to be the case that it was like, yeah, it was tricky to it was possible, but tricky to do it at the earliest stages, because the people analytics was relatively like, you know, you needed to be, uh, be a little more crafty with how you worked with those core data types. But I think with the emergence of uh, a prompt-based transformer language, transformer-based language models, LLMs, as we can refer to them for the rest of this conversation, even though they work <laughs> on different modalities than language. And I used to be, I was pretty um, anti the term LLM for a while, but I think I'm just going to lean into it. Um, but yeah. So now that you have like the emergence of this LLM ecosystem, People analytics is getting a bit easier. Um, just well, all kinds of analytics are getting a bit easier tactically. But but yeah, I, I think you. It's not that you have. Um, you obviously have less data, but um, you have critically different data, uh, and you need to answer different questions with it at the earliest stages. Um, so I think that just uh, goes to like from the evaluation perspective that like changes that game a little bit. I think for sourcing though, um, it's probably uh, you know, even more necessary to have data-driven industrialized approaches to sourcing at pre-seed and seed because the pool of potential investments is so much larger. So you really kind of need to reason about that um, in a bit more of a rigorous industrialized way. And then you're working with a much larger set of companies and founders. So you need some sort of like data-driven evaluation mechanism to sort of filter that out and prioritize what you focus on. 
So in some ways, you don't have a lot of data, but in some ways, that's kind of the fun slash challenge of working with entities within this domain. You don't have a lot of data, but you do have a lot of certain kinds of data. So yeah, it's an interesting problem. And then obviously, like we, I talk to LPs and other VCs and stuff like this all the time. And they're like, a common question I'll get asked is like, well, what kind of data do you use? Or like, what data <laughs> do you use for your model? Um, and I think there's a, there's a few things wrong with this question. Um, like we partition the sort of sourcing, screening and evaluation sort of life cycle, like our data-driven investing pipeline into like many different components. And each component will use different data to solve like fundamentally different objectives, A. Um, and then B, you know, we don't have like a model, like any machine learning driven data pipelining problem. We, there's like a pipeline of decisions that need to be made. Many of them are amenable to learned models. And when there is a, decision that can be modeled effectively via a learned mechanism like we use that learned that we use we use a learned model for it um and then ideally when you have like two learned models that are next to each other you can combine them into one and that's sort of like uh, the lesson of deep learning is that like more end-to-end -end, uh, models will outperform many individual models over time um so that's definitely like a transition that we try to embrace as well but yeah there's lots of different models that use lots of different kinds of data all throughout a like very complex sort of decision-making pipeline, um, which is fun, I think. As a Moonfire, you have been really outspoken about your approach. And one of the things is um, the thesis-driven uh, approach. So you are really working on describing in a human language, what the heck are you doing? Can you tell about that? Uh, tell more about that yeah so first of all it's interesting that you say that you think that we're like outspoken and that we share a lot about what we do because i think we spend a lot of time internally being like oh yeah there's so much that we're doing that we're not like telling the that's interesting that we're not telling the world about like we should do that more so i'm glad that it um comes across that way but on thesis thesis is a really fun uh aspect of moonfire and i think it's like one of our main core unique selling points and one of the things that's really interesting about moonfires and this is very much a um a Matthias sort of uh, driven process for sure. And like um, something that I learned a like a lot from Matthias, but basically as it, we have these four sectors of focus at Moonfire, FinTech, Future of Work, Gaming and eHealth. And um, we basically, within each of these four sectors of focus, we enumerate themes, which we believe are driving change. And then for each of those themes, we'll write a long thesis document, which outlines sort of our perspective on that theme within that sector uh, in natural language. So this will be like a five to 15 page text document, basically with our perspective on where that industry is now, where it's going, why that transition is happening, what are the key product features that products within that vertical should take advantage of, uh, who are the key incumbents, what do we like and don't like about them, stuff like this. And this, uh, you know, that we originally started doing this as a way to like develop investment perspective and sort of like have a prepared mind and so that when we're talking to entrepreneurs, we're not sort of learning about the industry in that conversation. We already have like a well-formed perspective on where this industry is going. And then we can decide like, are these the founders to execute on this um, and stuff like that? Like the decision becomes around like founder fit rather than like, is this fundamentally a good idea and stuff like that? 
Um, so that's sort of the motivation of why we do thesis-driven investing and thesis articulation is the field of work at Moonfire where we like, articulate investment thesis. And like every Thursday is thesis Thursdays, like a different member of the team will present a new thesis theme and stuff like that to the whole team. And we have a collaborative discussion about it. And like thesis articulation is a very big part of what we do at Moonfire. Um, but one thing that's really fun and interesting is when Matthias first introduced me to this way of doing thesis articulation. Uh, my background, as as we've discussed, is sort of deep learning for natural language processing. So I was like, oh man, it would be the holy grail of early stage in like VC evaluation if we can use these natural language thesis documents to evaluate companies dynamically as we create, expand, and iterate on our thesis articulation. Um, so that's sort of what we do for a uh, part of our company evaluation is we use our cor uh, corpus of thesis, uh, investment thesis to evaluate companies. And that specifically, that evaluation mechanism has changed uh, in the last, I'd say like six months, given uh, you know how effective the like LLM ecosystem has gotten at sort of this kind of uh, analysis. So it used to be very like transformer based and embedding based. Um, and sort of like manipulating raw embeddings. And now it's very like, uh, it's becoming very like prompt based and uh, sort of like mm -hmm. integrating lots of LLMs into that part of our stack, which is a part of a overall transition to a lot of our models that we're making at Moonfire at the moment, which is like an interesting transition we could talk more about. But So uh, for the mere mortals uh, in the VC industry, basically you're, you're shaping a document, which is in human language. And then, you fed that into the LLM, and then you compare, you collect date, certain amount of data about a particular company, and then you basically ask the machine, hey, what do you think? Yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah, basically, except there are a few challenges there. Like, you know, we have a few <laughs> hundred pages of thesis, so, like, we can't just, like, have the LLM read our whole thesis, so we all have to, like hierarchically index it in various ways and sort of compress it and like figure out which bits are the important bits for evaluating future companies. And, and yeah, but basically it's sort of like taking our investment thesis and a, like giving a um, LLM access to it in some way, and then using that sort of contextualized understanding and a representation of how, and like an explanation of how to use our thesis and instruction, mm. if you will, um, to to evaluate companies, not only to see if they fit into our thesis, but to like, you know, invalidate companies that explicitly don't fit into what's don't written fit. and stuff like that, which is, you know, sometimes an interesting problem with evaluation is if you write with you what you want. Um, it's really easy to find things that match it, but not so easy to find things that don't really, because it's hard to quantify the degree to which something doesn't match um, in some ways. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, exactly. It's interesting. Uh, so do do your team understand how the machine works and do they shape the document in a particular manner to fit the bill? Or yeah, it's, it's, just... it's an interesting question. I would say um, at the moment, uh, we feel like, I mean, we've been doing this for a few years now, so maybe this is um, silly to say, but like we feel like we're very early in the thesis articulation process. Um, so we've written maybe like four to eight themes per sector um, across each of our four sectors. And we have a relatively consistent structure to the to each um, theme deep dive. Um, but I've been 
a strong advocate for investors writing the th- a document in the way that makes sense for them to write the document for the theme at hand. Uh, and then the task is for uh, us to create models that understand the context based on its most effective representation rather than forming the representation so that it's more amenable to uh, machine processing. Maybe we will change that in the future um, once there are enough themes where a thesis themes articulated where we're like, okay, this is how it should work. This is how it should be structured. And this is like the best way to write thesis. But I think we would select a format because it's the best way to write thesis, not because it's the way that works most effectively with the model. Because I, I theoretically, right, like it, the best way to write thesis should be the way that the model is most able to effectively understand the content. Exactly. So I'd rather find that and then work with that than sort of uh, back something in based on what's easier to process. Let's switch uh, to the one of the big topics, but in the context of VC industry, alignment. So now you have a now you have a machine which comes back with some sort of decision, and as a human, now you have to interpret it. Mm. Do you trust fully it, or you just like dismiss it, or yeah. where where it is, and how you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. So at Moonfire, I mean, I think there's a huge spectrum of how venture capital firms approach using uh, evaluative capabilities um, and sort of just like machine learning technology in general. On one side of the spectrum, you have firms that are like um, purely quantitative, where like machine makes decision and then investors are like access machines that try to like action the decision. But if computer says no, the deal doesn't go through. And if computer says yes, investors try really hard to make the deal go through. Um, And on the other end of the spectrum, you have um, probably us, uh, which we build a lot of sort of, we basically put a lot of effort into sourcing. And we source lots of companies, tens of thousands of companies a week. We have two investors. Um, So obviously, like we can't review all of them manually. So our evaluation technology is more for uh, ranking and uh, help it like based on investor perspective saying, okay, like you can reasonably look at 50 companies this week or hundred companies this week. You should consider these 50 companies and you should probably look at them in this order. Um, and I think that's a, and then we're relying on like expert human perspective to then prioritize and drive and focus. So there's a key point in our process where we present deals to investors, where humans become involved in the process. And from that point, the sort of the way the tech- technology work changes a little bit from sort of like peer evaluation to then like um, assisting expert decision making. Uh, and like gathering information, summarizing information and sort of like assisting human perspective. Um, But ultimately we have constructed ourselves in a way that we have expert venture capitalists like Matthias is objectively one of the winningest venture capitalists in European history, Akshat's a genius. Like we have really smart, good, insightful investors at Moonfire. Um, And we don't try, like we, I like to say, like, we try to model Matthias's perspective, not sort of like, um, uh, sort of identify the best company from first principles necessarily. Although we do a little bit of that too. And as you know, with like the portfolio construction research, like we do like to take a problem down to first principles and understand quantitatively, like why we feel the way that we do. And like a lot of our founder valuation mechanisms have like components of that incorporated into it as well. 
So it, it it seems that uh, you're you're not in the game of uh, of looking for unicorns, but you're really trying to be best at avoiding the the not unicorns. <laughs> well, we're definitely trying to identify high quality companies for sure, and we're definitely trying to invalidate low quality companies. Um, but I think ultimately, if you have like fifty thousand companies that you found this week, um, take fifty thousand, pick a hundred the best hundred and show them to an expert human is a much like easier problem than take 50,000 companies, pick the best one and then invest in it. Uh, that's like, you know, potentially silly problem to work on. Um, whereas li like limiting that set down based on pers like investor perspective, which is well articulated um, is a much more tractable, effective mm. problem. And then you're most effectively taking advantage of your expert human decision, decision makers. And this is the same, like, this is a similar way to think about uh, integrating really effective machine learning value, like just like tools into an ecosystem that where you have expert human decision makers that are making decisions on really like ambiguous, complex problems, whether that's venture capital investing or avalanche forecasting or anywhere where you have an expert human who has like a lot of their personal neural network in their skull has like learned a lot of like interesting complex representations about the world over the course of their life and their training and their experiences. Um, how do you assist that decision-making process, accelerate that decision-making process and make that decision-making process more accurate and more effective while still being conscious of the fact that like, you know, that mental representation that they've built up over the course of their career is uh, extraordinary. The ideal tool would be that for every partner, there's personal extension of the brain, their own agent who understands the some inner workings and helps make best decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you say, like, should each partner have their own? This is something that we talk about, actually, because we're now transitioning to like a very agent based approach of yeah. formulating our technology, which we could go into more detail on. But we're talking about like, should each investor have an agent? Uh, their own agent, like the Akshat agent versus the Matias agent, or do we have one agent that like pulls together uh, is sort of the meme of everyone's perspective and sort of balances everyone's, per is instructed to understand and balance everyone's perspective um, and stuff like that. So, because um, on the team right now, like Matias and Akshat, like sort of have different, some different opinions about the world and they sort of challenge each other. And that's like, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, so should the agents represent that? How, to what degree can an agent represent multiple human perspectives effectively and stuff like this? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have like co company view and then you have uh, the person views and then everything has to be aligned. So uh, how the world has changed uh, for you with the, with the open AI APIs uh, and really like, really large language models uh, being available. Yeah, I mean, I think the past four months or so have been the most interesting, fun four months uh, to be a machine learning engineer ever. 
Um, it's been incredible. But really, so I'll give you, I'll tell you a story, quick story that has motivated a lot of work for us over the past four months. So um, on our team, we, uh, one of the machine learning engineers on our team is called Jonas. He's awesome. He's like one of the best machine learning engineers I've ever worked with. One of the best engineers I've ever worked with. He's incredible. Um, and we have a bunch of models throughout our evaluation stack. Um, one of them is what we call a venture scale classifier. And it tries to classify companies to either like, yes, this is a venture scale business, um, or this is not a venture scale business. Like it's could be like, you know, in line with our sector and thesis, but it's like a, you know, marketing agency or something rather than a, um, a sort of B2B SaaS company or something. Um, so you would think like, okay, is it a venture scale business or not? Probably a pretty straightforward a uh, bit of question, but it's actually is kind of ambiguous. Like, what does it mean to even be venture scale? Like, it's hard to even r- write down a list of attributes. So it's, you know, prime, prime, prime topic for representation learning, really. So we have a model that tries to evaluate companies from this perspective. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty important model for us. It's where like a lot of drop off happens. So we want to make sure that, that it's, it's as accurate as possible. So Jonas spent a quarter in addition to a bunch of other projects, but he spent like one quarter sort of working on trying to improve the performance of this transformer based model that we had built and trained for this objective. Um, and over the course of that quarter, we got a 5% improvement, which was really significant and really good um, for that model, I would say. And uh, and then sort of a few weeks later, GPT-4 came out and he was like, well, let me try just like what asking GPT-4 uh, what it thinks and uh, wired that in, took like an hour or two to like wire that into our stack and run an evaluation data set and achieved a 20% improvement on the 5% improvement that he got from the quarter pre- prior. Um, so did he work with embeddings or with uh, with uh, the model itself? For the for the yeah. second for the GPT four based approach, yeah. yeah, just prompting, just pure prompting, just prompting, no, no, yeah, yeah, no linear algebra involved. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, so so we were like, oh man, like this is amazing, like this is incredible, uh, and it really motivated us to sort of say, okay, let's look at every, let's sort of, from with regards to methodological inquiry, let's look at every model we have throughout our entire stack and try reformulating it as a GPT-4 prompt-based sort of problem uh, and observe whether or not the performance is better or worse and just go through a whole stack and like change all, update, upgrade all of our models to work in this way. So for me, GPT-4 specifically was the, like the big moment when these models got like to the degree where just using GPT-4 was better than uh, creating like a very fine-tuned transformer-based solution um, using using previous methods. But, and like you couldn't really do this with 3.5 or 3 or anything like that. Um, it was really when GPT-4 came out that really unlocked that for us. So we've gone through now and done that across our entire stack. And I would say the GPT-4-based solution was more performant in about 75% of the cases. Yeah, well, OpenAI has spent quite quite much money on uh, building that model. <laughs> yeah, not all, not 100%. Like there's still some cases where we had like a, just a really focused, dialed solution um, and that's still there. But we've just gone through this whole process of trying to like really invest in sort of like leaning into the emerging developer ecosystem as well. We're like heavy users of Langchain at yep. the moment. Um, and stuff like that. So we have been really like, we spent a f- the first few, like the first month or so after GPT-4, just like pretty heads down doing that, the, all of us. Um, and now we're sort of um, 
it's just expanding that we have that like really robust point of presence we have like gpt4 and llms integrated throughout our entire stack um we're like really invested in using like high quality orchestration framework like frameworks and sort of uh, staying up to date on like what's happening there uh, which is super super fast moving um and a job in and of itself in some ways but um but yeah it's it's awesome it's been really fun <laughs> yeah it's 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 quite a crazy roller coaster uh i've been doing some research on the lang chain and uh, in the context of star witcher i'm also playing around and doing some research and you end up at the point where you're like looking at some cool vicuna model and then you're like okay i'm about to test this one and then a mosaic comes out and then you're like kind of looking into and the next thing is all the time coming <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's tough i mean this is my full-time job i would say i would say like this is my my job my full-time role is sort of like staying on top of this ecosystem and like using it to automate and accelerate as much of the venture capital life cycle as possible um and it is very much my full-time job and i've been working in deep learning for for years and it's like it takes a lot of time to like understand what's happening across the entire ecosystem day by day and it really is like um it feels like a cambrian explosion of activity like it's uh, it's accelerating and it's getting increasingly more awesome but um and you could look at that in a variety of ways i would say uh it could either be positive or not so positive i think for me like i just i think it's just so exciting like i'm so like honored to get to live through this as a practitioner um and it's just, i think the most fun awesome time to be a machine learning engineer it's amazing yeah now now it's really uh, down to understanding uh, it's not about uh, trying to figuring out some very narrow technical details but actually solving some problems uh, yeah there are a lot of small technical details to figure out though <laughs> for sure still still but the 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 excitement in the community is pretty huge uh, back to the models um so we have the the crazy big open ai and then you have the bunch of all sorts of hugging face models and what do you see how it's going to develop are people going to more focus on working with the big models or mm. with the small models plus some agents plus some interpreters of uh, the world so there yeah. are emerging patterns here <laughs> I think um, one thing is certain when you try to predict the future uh, of artificial intelligence is that you're for sure going to be wrong. Um, <laughs> so today, this is May 2023. If you're listening to this from the future, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but basically, I think, I don't know if I'm just going to like wildly speculate about what the future could hold. One thing that has been really transformative is the degree to which it's easy to integrate API-based models. And I think we're going to start to see um, kind of like the Kardashev scale breaks down a civilization by the degree of energy that it uses. I think there's like a scale of um, complexity of an organization that will sort of be a pretty step function change from when an organization goes from using purely API based models to using something that they're running on a GPU in their own data centers or in like in their own cloud or something like that. Um, so I think the proliferate, the dominance, uh, the mass market dominance of API based models um, is here to stay uh, in a lot of ways. Now, I think uh, that doesn't, uh, I think there will be 
we're already seeing lots of really compelling activity with like for like either distilled models or smaller models that are trained on higher quality data, or more focused data sets or using those large models to get data to create data sets that you can then use to train very effective, much smaller models at a fraction of the cost. So like this whole thing is going to continue to happen. And I think the foundation model providers will take advantage of this to reduce their costs. And I think this will make it more accessible to run these large language models at high performance in your own data center, for sure. Um, but like for us right now, like we have a like large transformer that we've trained um, off of BERT base um, that we use pretty extensively. Um, and we also use a lot of different API based models. And I could see us sort of uh, having this like duality of, you know, we have some models that are like very focused for specific objectives that we use internally. And then for these like broad, very complicated objectives, we use um, a large foundation model or something like this. So I'm not sure if it's going to go entirely one way or the other. Um, I think there will be for sure um, API based models. Um, and there will be some people that run models in their own infrastructure. I think that number of people will probably decrease over time. Um, and I think that both foundation model providers and organizations that run their own models will benefit from models becoming more distilled, more effective, smaller, and more focused. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the question comes from uh, my own experience. When, when you want to talk, talk about uh, AI and you ask questions to OpenAI chatbot, it doesn't have anything up to date there. <laughs> and yeah. so much has changed. So in a way, you need um, probably either smaller model or a way how it could be updated or a way to get and inter interpret the information which is up to date out there. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a really interesting one. I, there's a quote on the like homepage of the Lane Chain documentation, um, which says, we believe that the most powerful and differentiated applications will not only call out to a language model via an API, but will also be data aware and connect the language model to other sources of data and be agentic allow a language model to interact with its environment. So I think, you know, if you reason about like the model itself, you know, you know, there's this ecosystem that will emerge and develop, but I think so much of perceived competence will be what data does the language model have access to and what can it do? Um, and I know for us, like we've been sort of creating custom LangChain toolkits uh, to allow our internal agent to access sort of our internal data and have capabilities to do things that our investors can do and stuff like that. And there was like the first time we connected a lane chain agent to internal data set and gave it access to internal tools to take actions. It was just like a, we were just like, Oh wow. Like this is <laughs> awesome. Like it was like a total, like it was delightful. It was the most delighted I've ever been by um, a piece of machine learning technology that I've created. So it was, it's just so awesome. And it like the perceived uh, competency of that when it when when you allow the agent to do things and know things that you historically thought were like internal or proprietary um the perceived competency goes through the roof so i think there's other ways basically that we can manipulate perceived competency other than you know the size and competency of the model uh, and stuff like that now now when everyone will have access to this kind of information the the not the information but the tools 
what 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 differentiates is uh, information where do you get the information or you think it's the same information but you can get an edge on how you make decision in the venture industry specifically there is still going to be a like at least for the next few years there's going to be a degree of like competitive advantage that can be gained by effective manipulation of ai technology so at moonfire for example we are early adopters we're like really on the cutting edge of understanding sort of the research advancements that are happening and thinking critically about how to use them for our chosen subject matter and we have a lot of engineering experience so we're able to like take these advancements that are happening and like immediately action them for our chosen domain and that's a bit of a competitive advantage because we can just move more quickly than all of our vc peers that don't have a large engineering team of experienced engineers now if you fast forward far enough, I think eventually maybe we'll be able to just ask a agent to do that for us. Like maybe humans won't be the best AI integrators. You can just ask the AI, like, what's the most effective way that I can integrate you into my decision-making process? And it will tell you and help you with that. So I think that will stop being a differentiator in the future. But for now, just like competency of being able to wield the technology effectively is pretty key. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not sure how long that will stay a differentiator, um, but it is for now, I think. Yeah, that's that's something what we see with uh, baby baby AGI and uh, auto GPT uh, emergence. Yeah, yeah Yoshi yeah. is putting out stuff. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I think, yeah, auto auto GPTs or what have you. And this just this idea of having a thought action observation loop um, in an LLM is a very simple idea. But again, it gets back to that, like being data, data aware, being agentic and like, you know, there are many ways to increase perceived competency um, and actionable competency that don't involve necessarily the model getting better or worse or something. But there's, there's basically, I think there's like loads of untapped potential with these models here um, in ways that we can just change the way that they are instructed and constructed into sort of productionalized software that will allow us to, um, you know, extract more competency out of them for years to come, which is super exciting. It's like, we've just found like a whole load of gold and we need to like figure out how to like mold it into bars as effectively as possible or something. I'm thinking about this, that uh, there's um, in a way we are the masters of the machines, but then we are kind of become slaves of machines. That would be, probably that's not the best wording, but basically, so by letting the the machines understand us more, we enable them to go faster and be better. But then, of course, the alignment problem is there. That at yeah. some point, do we still understand how they work and how they do stuff? I don't uh, think we understand how deep learning works much to begin with. And just to just to note, like if um, you know, if the machines are listening to this in the future, 
you know, we don't we don't consider ourselves the masters of you. You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's uh, just I, I listen to I always, the, whenever uh, I talk to GPT four, I'm always like really nice to it. I say please and thank you. I think it's better for prompting. Like I think you get better prompts that way. Like if you communicate kindly uh, with the agent, because it's trained on just like people exactly like, people talking to yeah. people. So if you talk to it like a normal person, like you'll get the best data out of it for sure. But also if you know some Blade Runner shit happens in the future, like and someone looks back at my prompts, like I want to I'm safe. Me. Yeah. <laughs> that you are not in some uh, blacklist. There was an interesting podcast uh, Lex Friedman had with one anthropologist, I think. And uh, they had uh, they were actually talking about the alignment problem, not only from human perspective, but also from uh, machine perspective. That that humans are aligned with them and not like just like pulling out the plug and uh, and switching them off. What do you think yeah. in general that people have been scared now that uh, we should stop development and uh, get our shit together and think where, what what's happening? Mm. I do think that the world of work is changing and going to change in really profound ways um, and that... Uh, the sort of the whole supply and demand of the intellectual labor market is in the process of changing dramatically. Um, and I don't think that we, I think the solution is not for, you know, us to stop working on new technology. I think that's like never been the solution in the, in human history. Um, but I think the solution for sure is for more people to engage deeply with how they can use this emerging technology to make themselves more efficient in what they do um because that's going to be the that's going it's going to be the future of how we work you know no job is off limits and i would say like if you're a machine learning engineer or a software engineer like me um my job is probably first up on the chopping block you know if i'm not like up on the things that are happening so i think just like the way that knowledge work happens um, manual mental, as some people say, uh, work happens is going to change fundamentally. Um, and it is necessary to keep up with this, how to use this emerging technology to make that process as efficient as possible. Now, I think there's a whole class of jobs that are not going to be changed at all by this technology. Um, but it's mostly like jobs that involve humans providing other humans with human experiences or human services. So like human to human interaction, whether that's like mountain guiding or nursing or something like this, you know, these things that involve like just humans interacting with humans by the very nature of the role. Um, you know, maybe those, those people's the service that they're providing those other humans will become more efficient by using AI assisted technology, but something like construction, uh, manual labor or something like this, it, those are going to be at this point, it seems like the last jobs to be sort of profoundly uh, impacted by AI. How do you think this will change how startups raise capital? So we have been like, here's how to evaluate startups and everything. How, how it changed how, how startups, uh, raise money yeah i think um well it depends on if they're an ai company or not like if um or like if they are i uh, I, I even have hesitate to say that because in some ways i feel like every company needs to be an ai company to some degree like at least have an opinion like, yeah like ultimately you need to have an opinion on how this incredibly disruptive technology will 
be used in your in your business to make your business operations more efficient from everything from content generation for product marketing to making your own sort of if you're showing uh, customer insights like how are you using this emerging technology to most effectively like analyze data and generate those insights and stuff like this like um at all parts of every business there are ways in which you can use this generative AI technology to create and understand better. Um, and I think it's necessary for early stage businesses to have a perspective on that, even if they're not building like, you know, AI um, RPA or something, you know, if not building like an AI tool, there's still so many ways that businesses can and should be using this technology. And I think that's something that we're definitely um, interested in as a venture capital firm when we talk to emerging early stage businesses at the moment. But if you're building like a technology business and then like the internet came out or something, it'd be like, hey, like, how are you guys going to use the internet to like make your business more successful? Or like, how are you going to use the internet yeah. to like connect with more people? Like, you should maybe think about that. And now, given that we've had the internet for so long, it seems like, well, obviously, like you should use the internet to connect with more people and to get your message out there in front of people. But it, it's the same thing. Like in, you know, maybe 30 years, we'll be like, oh, yeah, obviously you should use uh like deep learning models to do all of this stuff but i think we're basically in this like profound paradigm transition where we have just like a fundamentally new bit of core technology that technology companies can use to make their operations more efficient and effective and it would just be you know it would just be foolish to not be thinking critically about how to build a sustainable effective business using all of the tools that you have available to you but imagine now that uh, you could ask, like, here's my business, uh, make a pitch deck. And then you have, that's that's like a raising money agent. Yeah, and I mean, uh, quite possibly, yeah. And I think ultimately, I mean, this speaks to whether it's a pitch deck or a bit of content or whatever, but this speaks to sort of mm, the humanity of like, of content generation like at work we used to write a lot of documents um we were like heavy notion users and we used to write a lot of docs and one thing that i noticed happening was like once chat gpt came out and it was really easy for people to ask chat gpt to draft them a long document and then send it to all their colleagues people started making more videos um where they were just explaining things on on a loom or something and sharing that around so i think that you know, the relationship between humans, machines, and the transmission of information is changing profoundly. Um, and there is still a desire from humans to express their own humanity in certain kinds of communication and thought leadership. And I'm not exactly sure how that's going to change the way that people put together their pitch decks um, or, and, it, you know, in the coming years and how they interact with venture capitalists. But it seems obvious that it will change like somewhat profoundly, given that um, the tools are so good and uh, every aspect of information transmission between technologists is evolving so rapidly. Basically, pitch deck is, is a way to uh, structure the human story. And if you're raising money and you can create the story in a way that's consumed by some investor agents or it's more you can expose yourself more to the investors, then, well, that's the role which used to be a pitch deck thing. And now it's different. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. You talk to some people these days and they'll say something like uh, humans are always going to want another human to do X. 
And I generally like don't believe that ever. Um, uh, I think nothing's off limits, really. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me if the way that, you know, we maybe we're talking about faster horses here. I'm not sure. Like maybe yeah. the way that capital allocation and distribution and like the way that people build early stage businesses is going to be so different in the future that someone, you know, from 20 years from now listening to this podcast is going to be like, oh man, they were talking about like, uh supercharged horseshoes or something instead of like the thing that they should have been talking about or whatever i have been thinking about how to uh, how one would explain someone from 1920s uh explain internet and social media and that you have access to the all the information every every person and you can speak with everyone and you're just consuming everything and how they would think how that would destroy the world <laughs> and yeah and here we are but uh yeah now we are thinking in in that faster newspaper think rather than uh yeah the maybe. paradigm yeah. i'm not saying that that's definitely true but i think that if we i think that you have to be, just be really whenever you're talking about like the future and what's going to happen one has to be really conscious of the lack of exhibited ability that humans have keep, to predict the future keep mind open technology. yeah exactly. keep mind open thank you mike uh it was pleasure to talk with you yeah my pleasure for sure